Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 the wlcc brandon faith talk tampa online at letstalkfaith.com or listen on TuneIn and odyssey the following is sponsored by verse by verse ministries and is pre-recorded now in our day we have a little different situation but the principle is the same we have a democracy we have a say somewhat of a say in making the laws and once those laws though are established we are to obey them We are not to rebel. The Apostle Paul is a great example of one who submitted to the government. We're not going to go into all the details, but in Acts 24, before Felix, he submitted. In Acts 25, before Festus, he submitted. In Acts 26, before Agrippa, he submitted. And by the way, he was very respectful. And in Acts 28, as we said this morning, he said, I go to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Nero, who, by the way, later, history tells us that he was beheaded. Once again, with Verse by Verse and our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. This series taken from 1 Peter is very appropriate for the day in which we live. We think we've really got a problem with our government? I'd say, despite problems we have today, I'd rather live in our situation than under Nero. Pastor Steve is going to continue talking about our responsibilities as followers of Jesus Christ as it pertains to living in a fallen society. This is good stuff, and I hope you're ready for what is coming today. Here is Pastor Steve. According to the New Testament, life is intended to be an ordered business, and the government, the civil government, is set up and appointed by God to provide and maintain that order. And we, as believers, are to submit to that. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such, this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? This is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We're to submit willingly for the Lord's sake, for a good testimony. But I hear people say things like, I'm not going to pay my taxes, or I have a good mind. If I had the courage to do it, I wouldn't pay my taxes. Because I can't stand where those taxes are going. And I don't like this law, so I'm not going to obey it. We think we've really got a problem in government. Do you know the people that Peter is writing to? Do you know who was in authority then? Do you know what Caesar reigns? It was Nero. And I did some research this week about Nero and a little bit about his life. I think he was the greatest, as far as my studies, was the greatest creep alive. This guy had to take lessons on being a creep. Listen to this. Not only did he put the Christians to death, and not only did he torture them, But tradition says, and I told you about him burning Rome, but tradition says this. I didn't know why he burnt Rome. Tradition says he burned Rome to clear ground for his new palace complex. It's reported that as Rome burned, he watched the progress of the flames from a high tower while chanting to his own lyre verses on the destruction of Troy. 
You think he was bad. Listen to this. He caused people's death who were politically a threat to him. He got an order from the Senate of Rome to put his own mother to death in order to please his mistress. Now, that's a creep. Now, not only that, he once proposed to a woman, this was his stepsister, and upon her refusal, he ordered her killed. He was immoral, being known to be a homosexual, as were many of the Caesars. He was so wicked that the early Christians thought that he would return as the Antichrist. Now, Peter says, you submit to the king. Who's the king? Nero. You obey him. You do what he says. And this was the governing authority of Peter's day. And he said, submit. Now, in our day, we have a little different situation, but the principle is the same. We have a democracy. We have a say, somewhat of a say, in making the laws. And once those laws, though, are established, we are to obey them. We are not to rebel. The Apostle Paul is a great example of one who submitted to the government. We're not going to go into all the details, but in Acts 24, before Felix, he submitted. In Acts 25, before Festus, he submitted. In Acts 26, before Agrippa, he submitted. And by the way, he was very respectful. And in Acts 28, as we said this morning, he said, I go to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Nero, who, by the way, later, history tells us that he was beheaded. Peter is an example of how submission to government and obedience to God are not in conflict. Someone usually thinks, and will ask the question, but what about when the government tells you to do something that God's word is against, it would violate? I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I want you to see something. Usually we just quote the verse, it's better to obey God than man, but I want you to see the background of this. Peter became a flaming evangelist after the day of Pentecost, after he received the Holy Spirit, He had the resources to turn from a chicken to someone who had courage. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, we're going to read a long passage, so you need to turn there. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? The authorities. Now, this wasn't Rome, but this was the religious authorities of which Peter submitted himself to. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, remember they had healed a man, Peter and John, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by his name this man stands here before you in good health. And then he goes on to tell him about he is the stone which was rejected and so forth. We don't need to go over all of that. And then he says in in verse 12, he's salvation and so forth and no other name. Verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Perhaps the greatest compliment Peter and John had ever received. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This was their command. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking the things which we have seen and heard. I want you to go to verse 29. They go back to their people, the church. They tell them about what happened, and this is part of their prayer. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak the word with all confidence. Now, they told them not to speak. 
But the people were praying, Lord, based on their threats, you take note of it. Now give them boldness to speak. Just the opposite of what they commanded them. Now turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Say, why were they critical? Jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Why? Because they were doing what they told them not to do. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go your way. Stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. In other words, they had a decision. Do we obey the authorities or do we obey God? And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and the associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the door. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men who you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people exactly what you told them not to do, they're doing. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. Notice they submitted. They submitted and they didn't fight back. They didn't resist without violence, for they were afraid of the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, another great compliment, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. And look at verse 42. What are they doing after this? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah. What's the point? The point is, when the government and God are in conflict, and this is not something that takes place all the time, it is a rather infrequent thing. When the government or any authority tells you to do something that is a direct violation of the word of God, you obey God. But if there is no conflict, you obey your governing authorities. That's the whole point. You obey them. But notice, Peter didn't fight back. Peter didn't resist. He did what God said, and he accepted the consequences. If you're going to break a law because the government puts you in violation of the word of God, realize that you accept the consequences. If you break the law, when they go to put you in jail, don't say, I cannot go to jail and I have to fight you on this. No, you go to jail. Notice what Paul said in his last letter, 2 Timothy. He said, I'm ready to be offered up. I've done what I had to do and I'm ready to be offered up. He didn't fight. He didn't resist. You accept the consequences, but you do what God said. Now, it's possible and it's God's prerogative. He may open the prison door for you like he did with Peter. Probably not, but he could and possibly would. Verse 16. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You see, we can get the attitude because we're free, and because we are citizens of heaven, we don't have to obey the government. We're free. We obey what God says. We don't take orders from anybody. And I've known people like this. It's rebellion, and what it is, it's an excuse for the flesh. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom. You have liberty, certainly. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Don't say it's spiritual when you want to disregard authority. It's not spiritual. 
It's carnal. Call it that. But as a bond slave to God, you must obey him, and he has told us to submit to the government. Then in verse 17, he says some interesting things. He says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We're only going to deal in detail with honor all men. It may sound strange to us to hear this. To Peter's readers, it didn't sound strange. And you know why? Because not everyone was honored as a person. We need to understand a little bit about the background of this. When this letter was written, there were about 60,000 slaves in the Roman Empire. They did everything. Rome's mentality was this. We have conquered the world. We're going to sit back and let our slaves do everything. And they literally did. They let the slaves do everything. And they didn't work. Every slave was considered to be not a person but a thing with no personal rights. A slave had no rights. There was no justice for a slave, which we'll see later. But he was a thing. In other words, Peter is saying, don't get caught up in treating people like things. Like we so often do, we treat people as numbers. It's the same principle. We treat people as statistics. Just a number. Just a thing. Peter says, treat everybody, regardless of their background and walk of life, as people. Be people-oriented, not program-oriented, not activity-oriented, but treat individuals as individuals. Treat people as people. That's what God says. Honor all men. We don't have slaves. We certainly treat people as they are. That's why God says in the book of James, he says, don't be prejudiced. When someone comes in who doesn't have a lot of money, don't say go to the back. You welcome them like the person who's a millionaire. And we have to be so careful of this in our day and age, treating people special. I've seen this happen in churches. Somebody comes in as a little money, and all of a sudden, the leadership of the church is their best friend. I tell you, if they're going to be friends, let it not be because of money. We can use people and abuse people and put aside those who don't have money and material things or those who might be from a different walk of life, and we don't honor all men. I've seen it happen in churches. One Bible teacher said, When we regard anyone as existing solely to minister to our comfort or to further our plans, we are in effect regarding them not as persons but as things. The most tragic danger of all is that we may come to regard those nearest and dearest to us as existing for our convenience, and that is to treat them as things. So he says, honor all men. And then he goes on to say the other things which are really self-explanatory. Love the brotherhood. Love Christians. Fear God. Honor the king. We also have another role as a servant. In that day and age, it was a slave. In our day and age, it's as an employee. You want to know how to treat your bosses? This is how it is. By the way, Bruce Mills did an excellent tape on who's the boss concerning how a Christian should view working, and he deals with labor unions and things like that. You ought to get the tape on that and see what God's Word has to say about that. God's Word does not teach rebellion, does not teach labor unions. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Or the King James says, perverse. Most of the readers, as we said, were slaves of Rome. The term servant is not the usual word that's used, but it's another word, oiketai. It's a word used for household or domestic slaves. It was someone who worked as a slave around the house. Sometimes we think a slave did only menial tasks in the Roman Empire. Not true. Slaves had some of the most important positions in Rome. They were doctors. They were teachers. They were musicians. They were actors. They were secretaries. They ran the household. They did everything, and the rest of Rome just lived pampered lives. Idle. Idleness. The slaves were not allowed to marry, but they were to bear children. And the children became the possession of their masters. 
Just like, and it's no different between when your dog has puppies. That was the attitude of Rome. When your dog has puppies, they don't belong to that dog, they belong to you. That was the same attitude. Slaves were not always, though, unhappy. Some of them were treated very well. They were not always unhappy. Some were loved and trusted like members of the family. But a slave in Rome was a thing. That was all he was. He may be loved, he may be trusted, but he was no more than a thing. He was not a person, and there could be no justice where a slave was concerned. No matter what a master did, it was right. Aristotle gives us the Greek mind on this, and this would be the same Greek mind there as the Roman mind. He said there can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. That's the mentality they live with. But the gospel message came in and changed that. The gospel message said to the slave, you are not a thing, you are a person. You have dignity, you have worth, you are no less than your master. And masters, you are no greater than your slaves. Now, the problem could arise in this. The possibility was strong, and I'm sure it happened in many a case, that because of the dignity that Christianity gave the slaves, they had the idea that they could simply rebel and seek to abolish slavery. Nowhere in the word of God does it ever try to abolish slavery, which is another evidence that Paul's message, Peter's message, the word of God is not out to change society by government. But eventually, slavery was abolished. And if you trace it back, it goes back to the word of God, giving dignity to men. But Peter never says abolish slavery. As a matter of fact, there's nothing in the word of God about abolishing slavery. The only thing the word of God says is you have dignity, but based on that you are not to rebel, you are to submit. It would have labeled Christianity as another political movement and it would have been disastrous. Humanly speaking, it would have been stamped out. Though we know, divinely speaking, that could not have happened. The gospel is not to make you a rebel. You know that? It's to make you submissive. We apply it, we are enslaved today, but you have an employer, most of us, you are to submit to that employer. I want to show you Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing God. Why do you submit? You do it because you fear God, because this is what he's told you. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. A number of years ago, I had to come to a decision of whether I worked for Lakeside Community Chapel or whether I worked for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I decided in my heart that the Lord was the one I really worked for, it was so much easier to work here. Because when you only have the vision of working for people, then you get caught up in how people treat you. But you are to submit unto the Lord. Your master is really Christ. When you work on your job, you're to give an honest day's work. You're to be the best kind of worker. You're not to be idle. You're to have the proper attitude. You are to be an example. And when they see that, they can glorify God in the day of visitation because you have lived a proper life as the kind of employee you should. Not for money. We don't work for money. It's nice that it happens that way. It comes out of it, but we don't work. That's not our motivation for money, nor is it your motivation for your boss. But to please the Lord, we work for God. Verse 19 and 20. For this finds favor. What finds favor? If you submit to your masters, work unto the Lord. This finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? 
In other words, big deal if you get punished for something you should get punished for. There's nothing great about that. But, he says, what happens if you do a good job, if you submit to your masters, if you are the best employee that you can be and you honor him, what happens if when you do the right things you still get punished and you still get in trouble and you still suffer? If that, for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up on their sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently and you endure it, this finds favor with God. Why does it find favor with God? Because it silences your critics. That's why it finds favor with God. God says it's great regardless of your suffering. We get right back to Peter and the suffering readers. It's great because God's going to be glorified. That's how you handle your critics. It shows the critics that you're different. Something's taken place in your life. So as strangers, we abstain from fleshly lusts. As citizens, we submit to the government, and as servants, we submit to our employers. Did this happen in the early church? Did they ever get the message? They did. I want to read you a little history in closing. In the first half of the 4th century, Eusebius, the great church historian, could write, and I quote, But the splendor of the Catholic, and I take it that he means Catholic here, meaning the one and true church, Catholic and only true church, which is always the same, it grew in magnitude and power and reflected its piety and simplicity and freedom. This is by the 4th century, this was the attitude. And the modesty and purity of its inspired life and philosophy to every nation, both of the Greeks and barbarians. At the same time, the slanderous accusations which had been brought against the whole church also vanished. And there remained our teaching alone, which has prevailed over all, which is acknowledged to be superior in all dignity, and temperance, and in divine and philosophical doctrines, so that none of them now ventures to affix a base calumny upon our faith or any such slander as our ancient enemies formerly delighted to utter. You know what he's saying? He's saying exactly what Billy Graham said, but he put it this way. We're the Bibles the world is reading, and we're the creeds the world is heeding, and we're the sermons the world is needing. I ask you as we close, by your life, the people you work with, the people you associate with, the people you have contact with, would they, by your behavior, know what a real Christian is like? If they never met another Christian, would they say that you are the shining example and because of you they're going to consider your God? If you show me your redeemed life, Hines said, I'll listen about your Redeemer. That's the question that Peter poses to us and the, the whole concept and whole theme of this is that how do you silence your critics? by your behavior. How do you silence them? Not by arguing, not by writing a thesis, not by taking out an advertisement in the same P times. Nobody cares about that. But they do care about your life because that speaks the loudest. And when they listen to your life, then you take the word of God and you share with them, this is why I'm different. Not because of me, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we have prayed to be a pure people. We want to have an impact on our community. We want to have an impact on one another. I pray that you help us to live the kind of lives that speak about our Redeemer. Because he lived a pure life. And he lived a life that glorified you. That's what we want to do. The bottom line, our Father, we know is to glorify you by obeying the word of God. And we pray that you'll use us even this week not to be phonies, not to really be different than what we are, but we pray that you will give us people to share with why we're different 
We pray that people would come to us not to pride ourselves or pat ourselves on the back because we are what we are only by the grace of God, but we pray that we might have the opportunity to share with a lost person, even this week, the difference that Christ has made in our lives. Help us as strangers to abstain from those lusts, those temptations that we all have. Help us as citizens to obey our governing authorities, not to come across as so many are doing in these days, to be arrogant, to be proud, to want to change everything. Help us to confront people with the gospel. And Father, as employees, I pray for each one here who's an employee, help us to be the very best workers, not for our bosses, not for money, but our motivation be for the love of Christ. For the love of Christ, may that be our constraints. We thank you for the study of your word. We thank you for giving us your word. And we pray that you'll send us into that mission field this week to be active in sharing our faith. Because we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reminder Pastor Steve gave us was this. As strangers, we abstain from fleshly lusts. As citizens, we submit to the government. And as servants, we submit to our employers. And ultimately, as Christ followers, we submit to the Holy Spirit. We have had some powerful teaching here on our verse-by-verse program, and I hope this has challenged you. We have a lot we need to implement in our spiritual walk. I want to thank you for listening today to Verse by Verse. You know, we're closing in on the end of this series taken from 1 Peter, so I hope you're able to join us for the next two sessions as we wrap up this study in 1 Peter. 1 Peter.